0: welcome to the historic ocean house a luxurious hotel that pays homage to new england's golden age of hospitality with timeless elegance and renewed civility this treasured resort is the setting for our special broadcast of the ocean house author series each program features nationally best selling and award-winning authors in a salon style conversation hosted by ocean house owner actress and best-selling author deborah goodrich royce you'll hear fascinating conversations with exceptional authors like Chloe Milos, Avery Carpenter, Patty Callahan-Henry, Victoria Christopher Murray, Katie Curick, and more. WCRI is pleased to partner with The Ocean House to present this ongoing series, which brings you the best and the brightest of the literary world. Now, let's take you to The Ocean House.
1: We are so delighted to have all of you here today for the Ocean House Author Series. I am thrilled to welcome Chloe Malas and Deborah Goodrich-Royce to discuss Luck of the Draw, a memoir written by Chloe's grandfather, Frank Murphy. Chloe Malas is an entertainment reporter for CNN, covering all things entertainment and Hollywood for the network across platforms. In addition to her breaking news coverage of the entertainment industry, Malas has done extensive reporting for the Me Too era, reporting exclusively on sexual harassment and misconduct allegations on high-profile figures, including Kevin Spacey, Harvey Weinstein, and Morgan Freeman. Before joining CNN, Malas spent nearly seven years at Hollywood Life, where she was a senior entertainment reporter. She launched the site in 2009 with Bonnie Fuller. In 2013, Chloe became one of the co-hosts of VH1's hit morning show, The Gossip Table, and prior to Hollywood Life, she was a news assistant for CNN. Malas is a graduate of Auburn University, where she majored in radio, TV, and film. She grew up in both Dallas, Texas, and Atlanta, Georgia, and currently resides in Manhattan. Deborah Goodrich Rice's thrillers examine puzzles of identity. Brief Road hit Publishers Weekly's Best Seller list, Good Morning America's Top 15 list, and was an Indie Next pick by the American Booksellers Association for January 2023. Ruby Falls won the Zibia Award for Best Plot Twist in 2021, and Finding Mrs. Ford was hailed by Forbes, Book Riot, and Good Morning America's Best Of lists in 2019. She began as an actress on All My Children and in multiple films before transitioning to the role of story editor at Miramax Films, developing Emma and early versions of Chicago and A Wrinkle in Time. With her husband Chuck, Deborah restored the Avon Theater, Ocean House Hotel, Deer Mountain Inn, United Theater, Savoy Bookshop and Cafe, and numerous Main Street revitalization projects in Rhode Island and the Catskills. She serves on the governing and or advisory boards of the American Film Institute, the Avon Theater, Greenwich International Film Festival, New York Botanical Garden, Greenwich Historical Society, the Preservation Society of Newport, Preservation Foundation of Palm Beach, and the Prassad Project. Deborah holds a bachelor's degree in modern foreign languages and an honorary doctorate of humane letters from Lake Erie College. So Chloe and Deborah, will talk for a bit about the book and then we'll open it up to your audience questions. Now, please join me in welcoming Chloe Malas and Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Thank you,
2: Stephanie. And thank you all. I, Chloe, I'm so happy that you are here. I feel like sort of a, an honorary mom to Chloe. No, Chloe, sister. Oh, well, that's very sweet. <laughs> Chloe's husband went to the same school as my daughter. I don't think they knew each other, mm-hmm. but I always think life has these wonderful, full circle moments, which are very special. So thank you
3: for being here. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be here, day off work. I brought my brother, who's with me, in the back his first time to Rhode Island. Um, and my husband went to the University of Rhode Island, so we love coming up here. But this is so beautiful, so I'm just happy to be here.
2: Thank you. And I also want to call out how many of you here tonight are veterans? We have quite a few, right? Wow. Aww. Thank you for coming. It is, it's a, it's an extraordinary thing. And we feel very touched and honored that you're here. And I'm just going to start by saying your grandfather's memoir really blew me away. I do not read War Chronicles. It's just not something I'm drawn to read. But I don't know how much editing you did, but it reads like a novel. So if there are people in the room, if this isn't really your natural reading, it was a page turner for me, which surprised me. So why don't you begin what I really want to know is your journey, Chloe, from being the granddaughter of your grandfather and how you got to this Incredible moment of editing and re-releasing his really great work.
3: Well, thank you for those kind words. I agree with you that there's something in the book for everyone, um, which is why it's been such a joy to see girlfriends of mine or fellow moms reading it on the beach, and they'll send me a picture. And to my friend Susie, who will post it on social, and it's like, see, like there's something in it for everyone. They might skip some of like the denser parts about combat, but um, you know. I loved my grandfather so much. It was like a movie-style granddaughter-grandfather relationship. And some people have that with their mom. I'll probably cry a lot tonight, so just know that. So some people probably have that with their mom, maybe their dad, or maybe they're not lucky enough to have a relationship like that. Um, Not all my relationships are like that, okay? This was a unicorn moment, and... Um, I'm so happy to have known him, and he made such an impact on my life. He was so supportive of everyone. Frank, Grandpa Frank, Uncle Frank, just Frank Murphy, was the guy that you went to if you had a problem, because people said he had the patience of Job, and so the love is what has carried me. And. I knew that my grandfather was in World War II. I assumed everyone had a grandfather that had a story like this. Um, I have a nose for news. And as I got older, I realized that there was something maybe a tad special here, more than just a love that I have. Um, But I sort of always figured that I had a biased opinion. And in my mid-20s, I don't know what spurred it. This was after my grandfather passed away when I was in college. I took a really big interest in his wartime experiences, and I joined some different boards, but first it started with listening to people speak at things like this, and authors speak, and historians speak, and um, I started just learning more and getting to know the community more, and to, I know it's a long answer, but basically when I knew that Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg were going to be making a TV show in which he was going to be a character, and there was a whole backstory to that too, I said, what a shame that this, and now I'm working at CNN at this point, that this book is just in boxes at grandma's house, that he only wrote it for the family. That was all it was ever intended for. So I set out on this mission that I bet you people are going to want to read this book. It's good. And I had a few other people read it, journalists. They were like, it's good. I'm like, okay. So I went to my family. They're like, are you sure? I'm like, and it was kind of always treated like the little engine that could, um, which is why it's been enormously gratifying to have it be successful because um, it's far exceeded expectations, that's for sure.
2: Let's talk about that, because I know you called out Susie Stanglin, who is here. I know that you've worked together, and Susie and I work together, and we have a whole team of wonderful people we work with. She's a little magician. And you and I met last year because Mm -hmm. of Susie, Mm -hmm. and you said you had this vision of making your grandfather's book a New York Times bestseller, and I have nominated Chloe, the world's best granddaughter. So any <laughs> granddaughters in the house, you know, this is your what you need to aspire to. But you did it, and you, you really pulled this book. I mean, you moved heaven and earth, and you put all of your energy into it, and it is a, it is a worthy book, but you, you can't just lie around and have something like that happen.
3: No, and first of all, so... I met you pretty early on in in the journey of thinking about publicity and marketing for the book. Um, And, you know, I soon after meeting you and talking to other people kind of just decided that that's a silly goal. And, you know, I don't need a title or a number on a list to validate my grandfather's story. But I just thought it would be cool to add to his resume posthumously what's the ultimate thing that I could achieve for him. And so it was always in the back of my mind. um, And I just worked relentlessly, graceful and relentless together somehow. And um, I just called in as many favors as possible to fellow journalists to see, get people to write about the book. And a lot of places didn't want to write about it because I work for CNN. So I really wanted some conservative media to cover it, and they wouldn't. Um, they didn't say it was because I work at CNN, but I think that's, that's what it was. Um, and I just think, I've recently been learning about emotional intelligence. So this might sound a little hokey, but there's something called the Hawkins Scale of Emotional Intelligence. And there is a level that is about generosity. And most of us, I guess, live your life like... Um, with some very like negative feelings, and you're like, but if you can achieve certain levels of that, and I think that this was just one of those moments where I just happened to like jump up a couple points. For a br- I'm back down now, but like jump up a couple <laughs> points. I'm really like low right now, but um, jump up a couple points. And I think I, I did it for a pure, from a pure place. Like we're not making money from the book. Um, we're giving it to two different World War II organizations. This isn't a book I wrote. This was my grandfather. And it came from a place of love. So I think that it resonated with people. Because I think everybody, I hope, I think a lot, I won't say everybody, but I think a lot of people have someone in their life that touched them, right? And it's, it's, I think it's also about, you never know whose story, you might think that your story is not important and you don't have to go be in a war for your story to be important for someone. I think we've all lived through some crazy stuff over the past few years. I think everyone should write down, J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter on a, Napkins, but I think everybody should write down their story because you don't know a future grandchild or great grandchild that might be interested in it one day. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's a saying
2: uh, that I've read about writing: if you just write a little bit every day of what's going on, you are in fact writing history. Mm-hmm. It's just that little bit of what happened today. But let's talk about your grandfather. So he was a boy from Atlanta, mm-hmm. and t- and. Walk people a little bit through how he ended up, where he was in World War II.
3: Well, so my I'm half Greek my on my dad's side. The other side is like straight Southern, you know, I have ancestors that were like in the Confederate army, right? So I mean, like it goes deep, like gone with the wind, back, back, back in the day down there. And so um, my grandfather grew up in Atlanta and he grew up near Emory University and he actually ended up going to emory university and he grew up in a very catholic family one of three boys um, he was the middle child and he had an older brother mike and a younger brother john and he had a wonderful relationship with his parents um and he was in em- if we skip ahead he was well he was kind of like the person that you would almost like want to hate because he was just like so perfect actually. And it's the truth. I'm not, I'm not, but he was captain of the football team, class president, you know, played musical instruments, but just like an all around soft-spoken, true Southern gentleman. Uh, In college, when Pearl Harbor happened, he knew that he loved airplanes. He had taken a couple flying lessons uh, down at Candler Field, uh, which is now where Hartsfield Airport is. And he knew he wanted to join the Air Force, so he went his parents he dropped out of Emory and he enlisted but his eyesight wasn't good enough so he became a navigator and they said we know you want to be an officer you're smart we need navigators and so he he studied and went around the country you'll read about it to a bunch of different places for training for the next two years before he went to Fort Babbitts in England
2: and for the younger people in the room you will see in the book being a navigator on a B-17. You're, you, you didn't have a computer. It was not like tick-tick-tick-tick-tick. It was papers and huddled down. Yeah. It's just incredible to read. The, these guys were in essentially a tin can mm-hmm. in the air.
3: I mean, it was freezing cold. Yeah. Uh, these weren't temper, temperature-regulated planes. Really, really loud, especially in combat. Um, There's really like no place to lie down. I've been in a B-17. Um, and they're very cramped and he was the one that he said looked kind of odd cause he would carry a briefcase onto the B 17 and he had all of his tools and he would sit at the navigators table and yes, there is a lot riding on my grandfather's shoulders. And I think that he had the perfect temperament to be a navigator cause you have to keep your calm. He's got to get these guys to where they've got to go through combat and get them back and you are relying on the stars. You are relying on the horizon, and at times you can't see it. Um, so it brings me back to what Tom Hanks said on the cover. How did those boys do such things? And that's why I'm especially excited for the TV show too, because it's going like to bring these types of stories to life. It doesn't at all like, take away from modern day combat. It was just pretty bare bones what they were dealing with.
2: Right. Talk a little bit about the camaraderie of, at at this moment, they were all young men. There were no young women, or I I think, and they were young, too. Mm -hmm. I don't think there was a lot of age variety, and there certainly was no gender variety on those B-17s. But they really, uh, your grandfather conveys being with one group and then sometimes that is changed and how unnerving that is when they switch you. Talk a little
3: bit about that. Yeah, well, so, I mean, first of all, it. Ranges from 18 to probably about 25 years old. Uh, my grandfather was uh, 22 when he was shot down, and he had flown 21 missions. And sometimes they'll pull a navigator or they'll pull a pilot, and you fly on different crews. So my grandfather happened to fly uh, on a very famous mission, which is called Regensburg, and that is um, to is, is, in, is in the book, and, and you'll read about it. And he flew with what is now a very famous crew, uh, with Egan and Brady. And they make it through this unbelievably scary experience and firefight in the sky. And the plan is you got it, and they had a very damaged plane, and get that plane to Africa. And they land in northern Africa. Um, in Morocco and there's some really really cool pictures of them and they had, and the plane was so damaged they couldn't get back, they had to wait for a new plane to get them back to England. Um, But there were moments where members of not his particular crew, but other, you're in these little Nissan huts and you all have these, these beds in your trunks with your things at the at the foot of the bed and you would go out on these missions and 10 planes would get shot down out of 20 or 15 planes would get shot down and you would come back and you'd be like, where is Tommy? Where's Bobby? Where's John? And then quickly their things were taken out mm-hmm. without ever talking about them again. And so my grandfather talked a lot about spending the rest of his life walking with ghosts, which means survivor's guilt, mm-hmm. which, which means for me, something I'm exploring in a piece that's going to publish in a few days on CNN is post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. And I think that writing this book was a healing process for him. A lot of people, I just want to tell you, say to me, and it's been a criticism too, which I welcome, that he, he, he writes everyone's names and their rank and where they came from. And some of that can bog you down a little bit. But that's, that was him paying tribute to these men, giving them a moment to like, write their names down and a moment of historical record. Right, and so he never intended for this book to be what it is now, and I'm glad that it is. He'd be so <laughs> humbled and totally shocked that everyone is reading this book, right, or that this people are reading the book outside of the you know 12 people in our family. Um, and so, <laughs> but you know, you'll notice that, and, and, and also you read in the book that he, you know they were patriotic. I was just talking about this with former governor of Texas, Rick Perry, the other day. We did a little event together, and he's a huge supporter of this. His dad was in the 8th Air Force with my grandfather. He then later joined the Air Force. And it wasn't so much as flying for America as it was flying for the man to your left and to your right. Mm -hmm. They kept getting in the plane every day because they wanted to be there for each other. And that's really emotional to me.
2: I read uh, an analysis that really resonated for me of, of what post-traumatic stress disorder is. And whoever was writing it, they described it as follows. You're, you're in a situation where the person next to you will die for you. And then you go home, and it, it's sort of the how mundane life is, that people are all strung out about the grocery store, or what's going on at school, or this or that. And it's just such a, an adjustment in order of magnitude, where you're living really at the, the absolute highest level of importance, survival. Will I live? Will I die? Will I save this person? Will that person save me? To all these things that we live our lives thinking about, and it's, it's a disconnect. Coming home to that.
3: My, my mom, who was a child of the 60s, uh, we've done some events recently together, and we wrote the foreword together, and she was one of four children, and my grandfather, her dad, never talked about his experiences, ever, and she looks back on his temperament, what he writes in the book, um, and she says he never got upset about bad grades, never got upset, never raised his voice, You know, I think that war, for him specifically, put things into perspective. And for me, as a mom of two boys, and as someone who can get easily rattled over the little things in life, this really does uh, give you focus as to what is important. And the countless millions of Americans, that young boys that put their lives on the line.
0: We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI.
2: One of the things that really struck me the way it was done at this base where they were living in England if if a young man was going on a mission that day that's the day they got eggs for breakfast and I <laughs> thought boy that must have been very complicated getting those eggs because they were not generally getting right. such a nutritious breakfast you know things were there was really a lot of privation in World War 2 so You know, you get the eggs, but then you. It's like your final meal. Do the thing. (laughs) So, being shot down, Mm -hmm. he describes it being a prisoner of war and a Stalag in Germany, being on a forced march. He describes it all. It's really riveting. Uh, How was it for you to read that?
3: Mm. Well, you know, truth be told, it, it came, he self published it when I was in. High school. I didn't read the book until my 20s. This was, I didn't really feel the need to read the book because I'd, I had like lived the stories, right? Um, I went to go visit Thorpe Abbott's, the Air Force Base, before he died. I happened to be studying abroad in London. Um, but it all came together for me when I read it at about 25 years old, which is around the time that I got to know Don Miller, who wrote Masters of the Air. I listened to him speak at something like this at the Atlanta History Center. He is a very famous historian, and he had interviewed my grandfather for his book. And so um, you know, this is post almost 10 years since my grandfather had died. And I've read it, obviously, multiple times since then. And I find something new every single time. And I just, there's so much I wish I could ask him now.
2: And that's the thing we don't do. Uh, Mark Twain. There's a wonderful quotation that I'm going to badly paraphrase. It goes something like, "When I was 15, my father was the stupidest man I'd ever met. By the time I was 25, I was amazed to see how much he'd learned." <laughs> and of course, it's true. It's our perspective. And and. So, he, but he did, uh, talk about that march, being in the Stalag, and then, you know, as many of you know, there, as the Russians were closing in, really from the Eastern Front, when, and the Americans and the Allies were closing in from the Western Front, many of these uh, officers in these prisons would take these people on these forced marches trying to get away. Your grandfather was one of those people.
3: Yes, so my grandfather was in a prison camp called Stalag Luft III. And so when he was shot down on his 21st mission, you only have to fly 25 and then you can go home. So he was almost done. But the percentage of those that finished 25 missions was very, very small. Um, And so my grandfather was shot down during Black Week, um, which is because there were so many casualties and planes shot down, and two men on his crew died that day, which is something that I still am processing. And we could talk about that later if you want. Um, But he was in solid three where the great escape happened. So he's there for quite a while for over a year and he too tunneled out and that's another story too but you can read it in the book uh, or tried to tunnel, tunnel out um so the russians are advancing and the germans are scared and hitler says get them out and march them to mooseberg according to don miller and other people this is not me saying it it was the coldest winter um in that part of the world and ever supposedly, right? That sounds like a tall tale, like I caught a fish this big, but that's what they say. Um, And there was snow up to their knees. They grabbed their quote pitiful belongings and, you know, uh, men had made sleds and they were marching for several days, very little food. Men were passing out all around them from the cold. They were Leaving their sleds, they were taking things off. They were dropping their telegrams because it was too much to carry. Begging each other to continue, burning their telegrams, burning to, for fires, which is really sad, right? These things that they wanted to bring home. Um, it's amazing how much, though, did make it home. If you go to things like the World War II Museum in New Orleans, it's just amazing, like the ledgers and the thing. You know, I always wonder. Just side note, how they have photographs. I'm like, who was there? Was there like a journalist there? They, these were pinhole cameras. They made their own cameras. And they bribed the guards to go and take the film and, and develop it, right? I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, it's, it, you know, it's not like how I thought. Oh, is there like a war correspondent like in there? <laughs> um, and there were, um, but not really. Um, and so they, they are on a boxcar. Um, they somewhat know about the extermination camps, but not really, right? They're not too far from Auschwitz. Um, and my grandfather traded shoes. Uh, he had these leather shoes, obviously soaking wet. He couldn't feel his feet from his knees down. They were walking through towns that they had bombed, and they were throwing rocks at them, the Germans, right? Um, and you know, they were in the box car for like over twenty-four hours, and the Germans they didn't want to open the They were going to the bathroom all around each other, crowded in there. But, I mean, when you compare it to things like the Holocaust, obviously, like, they were doing far, far better. You know, I'm not trying to compare the two at all. Um, And then they make it to Stalag 7A. It was built for 10,000 prisoners, and there were 100,000 prisoners there. So they had, he had lice, dysentery. Imagine what it smelled like. Um, If you thought the food was bad at Stalag Luft Three. It was about to get much worse. Um, I think I said lice. He had lost like 60 pounds. He think he weighed like 120 pounds when he got out. Um, and he was a big guy. It, well, not super tall, but if, you know, let's just say that grandpa never missed a meal after the war, okay? <laughs> and now I know why. Grandma used to get mad at him for eating peanut butter with a spoon late at night and he would leave it perfect so that the peanut butter was like all around the edges so grandma didn't know. And then grandma would go down there and she'd be like, Frank? <laughs> um, so I don't blame him now. Um, and. Yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a really tough situation. Um, they're lucky that they were alive because at one point Hitler talked about uh, exterminating all of the uh, POWs that they had. And they were actually convinced by officers not to.
2: There's a striking moment when it is Patton, right, mm-hmm. who takes a look at your grandfather and the men with him. And he says something.
3: Yeah. Go ahead. What does he say? <laughs> he says we're going to kill the i'm going to kill these sons of bitches for this and it was something that my grandfather that was like one of the stories that he would tell over my chicken fingers and shirley temples growing up and i always thought that was so funny because he never cursed so he would like say this and i'd be like what who's Patton? and what's he saying and i had several cousins and one in particular that was very interested in the military he went on to be to enlist in the military he went to virginia military institute and so i happened to spend my weekends sleeping over at grandma and grandpa's house with Ben and Ben asked all the questions and I got to listen. So I got to listen to these stories. So that's how I got to learn a lot more. So grandpa was ready to talk when I came along. So he didn't talk to his four kids about it. Um, it was around when he was getting close to retirement that he learned that veterans were meeting in different veterans groups around the country. And his particular group, the 100th Bomb group, they were meeting, and he started going. And so he started meeting other veterans, and they were like, I thought you were dead. And they were like, I thought you were dead. And so he started going to these. And then my mother started writing children's books as, a, as like a hobby. And she gave him, for one of his birthdays, how to write your life story, like a book. And so that's kind of how that happened. And it gave him something really meaningful to do for almost 10 years to write this book in uh, retirement.
2: And how did the Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg series come along, and how did it dovetail back to your grandfather?
3: I mean, it's sort of all one big coincidence, and I don't fully know everything, but what I do know is that um, my grandfather wrote his book in 2001, well, it came out in 2001. Uh, he had self-published it with a um, friend of his who had like a food and nutrition publishing company. And so he's like, well, if you pay for it, I have the printers, like we'll print it. And so my grandfather would go to these reunion groups and he would just pass them out, like to whoever would take one. Um, Maybe at most there was like a couple hundred in circulation. Now some of them are actually sold on like eBay now, like the original ones. And we know that Tom Hanks' production company got a hold of my grandfather's book because someone called him one day from the company and said something to him that they were maybe doing an episode for, like, the History Channel or something. And I've talked to them about this, and we still don't know how all that happened. So that's in one bucket. 2006 or seven comes along. My grandfather passes away, and Don Miller, that historian I keep mentioning, he wrote Masters of the Air, becomes a New York Times bestseller, and Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, they option the book, which means that like they pay him to turn it into a movie or a TV show. But that was 2007, and now it's 2023. So even Hanks and Spielberg, it, it's, it's hard, right? And so I would go to these reunion groups, and I just started hearing that there was going to be a TV show. And so I'm a journalist, and I ask questions. And so I quickly figured out kind of what was going on. And I interviewed Hanks, and I interviewed Spielberg for different projects. And I would always find a way to wiggle in my grandfather's story at the very end. And um, I actually gave them copies of my grandfather's original book um but it turns out that the head writer had already gotten his hands on my grandfather's book and we were sitting next to each other at an event and he pulls out the book and he showed me it was full of post-it notes and highlights and notes and i started to cry and then at some point someone said you know he's a character i'm like no i didn't know and so uh that was really wonderful but i would be happy for this even if he wasn't Um, but that's why i went to tom hanks and asked him if he would consider giving a quote for the cover and I'm really grateful that he that he did. So my grandfather is a supporting character played by an actor named Jonas Moore and the series stars Austin Butler and it'll be out at some point this year on Apple and
2: Is he Elvis?
3: I know Austin Butler I the know yeah. have you guys seen the Elvis yeah. Yeah. movie? Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. so
2: good. Oh good. Oh, I, I, I know. love that. Now, is this a mini-series or an ongoing? It's a a mini-series.
3: It's, I think, eight episodes, eight or nine episodes. But what's really cool is at the end, there's a behind-the-scenes. So this is like Band of Brothers, The Pacific, and now this is Masters of the Air. And so for people that have followed those series, this is like long overdue. People have been hearing about this for like 15 plus years. There's like whole message boards dedicated to this. I went to the set during the pandemic and it's one of the most expensive TV shows ever made. It's, they recreated the war, they rebuilt B7, they built B-17s, they built the prison camp and I walked through it. Where
2: did they do this?
3: Uh, Northern England.
2: Right. Wow.
3: Near where Grandpa flew. Wow. And, and these are, they are such massive sets. And you being a former actress, like, these are such massive sets that they are like, an, over an hour apart from each other. Like, it's like the people who did like, Star Wars, and like, mm-hmm. the people who are like the set designers. And when you walk through the prison camp, even down to the cigarette butts and the little dominoes on the table, everything is just as if it had mm-hmm. really just happened fake snow on the ground made of like paper. It's just the coolest, coolest thing. But the very last episode is the behind the scenes of the families and they interviewed my grandmother. Susie was there, my grandmother who's 93 uh, and still with us, me and my mom. So we talk about grandpa on this.
2: It's incredible. And in the weird full circle, uh, I'm looking to see if my, my fellow father-in-law, so his son's married to my daughter, his dad flew in a B-17. His dad was a prisoner of war, not in the same group as your grandfather. He read that book. When I was telling him about you, he said, yes, I've read that. So he must have been in that group whenever it came out that received a copy.
0: We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI.
2: I think we should open it to questions, because I think there are so many people here with real experiences (laughs) of war, of being in the service. I think it would be really interesting to hear what you have to say or what you'd like to know. Yes.
4: The first question we have is about the museum in Savannah and the work that your grandfather did for the museum.
3: Well, if you get a chance to go to Savannah, which I highly recommend and do a ghost tour and all that fun stuff, uh, you should stop by the Mighty Eighth Museum. It's in Pooler. It's right outside of Savannah, but it's literally down the street from the airport. And it is a beautiful museum that my grandfather spent many, many years tirelessly raising uh, money for donating, donating to the museum. Um, they have B seven a B-17 and airplanes and a hangar and really incredible stuff. So a lot of the things from the book are actually even on display there. So it's, um, when you go to the World War II Museum in New Orleans, I was just there. It's great, but it's a total overview of World War II. There isn't something specific to um, like the 8th or the 100th, which is sort of like the most famous group now called the Bloody Hundredth is the nickname of my grandfather's um, bomb group.
4: A second part of that question is, she heard that when your grandfather crashed down, he didn't have any of his identification on him.
3: Yeah, he didn't have his dog tags on him. So they thought that he was a spy. So he could have been killed that day, which is really scary. (laughs) I wish I could ask him why he didn't put them on. I mean, I know he forgot, but that's another thing that I wanna talk to him would like to talk to him. Well, we will, you know, later, one day, I'll talk to him again. But um, he didn't have them on, and I wish I had the dog tags. And some real sweet friends of mine in the 100th, they have replicated his A2 jacket for me, and the dog tags, so that's really, really sweet.
4: He also convinced the farmer's family on the field where he crashed down to hide him?
3: Well, they, so when he landed in the German farmer's field, they were, they were actually having like a Sunday lunch, And they were like, what is happening? And then they saw Grandpa and tangled up in his parachute. His leg, ankle sprained, bloody because he had shrapnel in his shoulder. And they bandaged him up, took him inside, but then they had to turn him over to the German police and as he was riding in the jeep with the German police, he passed another jeep with some of the men from his crew. And then they all went together and then they were interrogated.
2: And you still have the shoe, the wooden shoe.
3: I have, yes, I I should have said that. So I have one of, I have the only shoe, because we don't know what happened to the other, that he wore during that march from one prison camp to the other, the march to Mooseburg in the snow. And it sits in my office.
2: It's like a little Dutch clog. Yeah. Know, one of those carved wooden shoes. Yeah, it's wood. unbelievable
3: that he wore that. Incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. But I guess better, the lesser of two evils. Right. But everything else is in museums. Because I don't believe that one person should have those things. Um, you know, there's dynamic, complicated dynamics in all families. And I just don't think that any one person should have it, like, closed off in a closet. I do reserve the right for now to hold that one shoe, but I, will, I won't have it forever.
4: The next question is about the Americans who came in to fly during the day because the English Air Force was so decimated that the Americans would do the day missions and the English would do the night missions, which also caused a lot of American pilot lives to be lost because they were flying during the day.
3: So you're right. So that is something that's really important here, and I'm sure it'll be depicted in the show is that um, my grandfather came along at a time where, uh, you know, higher ups in the military decided that they should be doing these bombing raids during the day. So it's in broad daylight, so you're like a sitting duck waiting to get shot down. And these are heavy, heavy B-17 bombers, right? These are not fighter jets that they're flying and they had no escorts uh, until later in the war. So you are going in there in a heavy, slow airplane and you're getting picked off by the Luftwaffe. And my grandfather occasionally would get on the gun and in, uh, the day that they were shot down, he goes back and he writes about putting, taking his oxygen off because they were oxygen up there and he went back to get extra bullets and bring them back to the front. And actually, I am working on trying to get him the Distinguished Flying Cross for that because everyone who flew on Regensburg, General LeMay wrote an entire report called the Lay Report, and in it they say that everyone who flew on that mission should have gotten a Distinguished Flying Cross. That's my next mission. When I have a minute, I'm going to try to. Is
2: she work not on a that. good granddaughter? Come on. <laughs> I mean, it's just. So one of the things that really struck me, uh, your grandfather details, I mean, the title of the book, first of all, Luck of the Draw, he really is very clear that it's not like somebody does it right and somebody does it wrong, and that one lives and that one dies. He's very clear that that's not what happens. But he he talks about there is a a different order of luck depending on where you end up in the formation Mm -hmm. of airplanes. Well,
3: there's um, the Purple Heart Corner. Right. That's where you're flying down low, um, and he flew down there sometimes. His plane was called. They also had like funny names for their airplanes too. Yeah. His was called Bastards Bungalow, um, but the plane that he was shot down in, and he writes about it in the book too. It's the strangest name, and I can't even say it right. All All Argo. I even in the book he's like it. Baffled us. The name of the plane, we we, we don't know. Um, but the nos are. It's so interesting. So it's like all these different people from all these different backgrounds with all these different skill sets came together, and that's why these prison camps were these like orderly orderly little cities, right? Where everybody had their their role to do, and there was a lot of order, and they had learned it from the British, right? To take all of your Red Cross um, rations, and they rationed out the food. The, some people were. Um, cooking, or you were washing the clothes, or you were um, looking out while your fellow man was digging, and there was an entire like construction architectural engineering team behind that. There were people who my grandfather played in the band. There was a prisoner of war band, um, and they put on concerts. They built a theater. They would I mean, it's crazy. And I went to the Air Force Academy recently, and I was just looking at like they had programs, like Christmas programs, and they, you know, they were doing the best they could to bring happiness. They didn't know when the war would end, how they would ever get out. Um, so there were those moments in Stalag Luft 3, but Stalag Seven A, it was like all hell broke loose there. Um, in terms of like I said, ten thousand prisoners, it was built for a hundred thousand. Um, but, I mean, I just think it's so neat. Like, they had, like a, like, a newspaper that they would write. They would tell you the weather forecast and things like that. On like, the, So they um, had a lot of control. So you might be wondering, like, well, why would the Germans, like, allow them to do this? But the German guards that were there were either, like, at a, of a certain age, not fit for combat, um, injured themselves. They got paid less like very little, they had worse food than the prisoners. So they were pretty easily manipulated. And this was an officer's camp because my grandfather was an officer. So there was a mutual respect between the German officers and the American uh, and British prisoners of war. And that, uh, you know, the commandant who ran the camp actually had a lot of respect and fought for the rights of the, the prisoners. It was not a country club but allowed them you know, and, and there's a poignant moment in the book where my grandfather is uh, told that they could move to a different part of like a different um quarter so like the prison camp was broken down in like to four sections and he was offered at one point to move to a different quarter but he had just been a part of the band and just joined and he didn't want to let them down and the christmas concert was coming up and although other members of his crew and people he knew were there The only men that he knew from his squadron, they transferred and Grandpa stayed behind for the band. So that was something really nice. Just the relationships and Mm -hmm. not wanting to let people down. But something that's interesting is you'll read these telegrams in here. And he gets increasingly frustrated because he's writing countless telegrams to his parents. And they're getting there, but his parents' telegrams aren't making it back. So he's like, hey, it's like a year later and I'm just getting your Christmas telegram that you sent last year. Remember, I I need socks. I need this. And he's like getting a little frustrated and then he'll write them back and he'll apologize for the last telegram. My tone. I won't. I'm sorry for being so greedy. And he's asking for salt and spices and socks and
2: It's incredible to read because you you see this, what you're saying is this human spirit to create a meaningful life and to create beauty no matter what the circumstances, Mm -hmm. to do something like play music or or have a newspaper. I think it's in our DNA to pick ourselves up no, no matter where we are.
3: And also, you know, Deborah, I truly believe now more than ever that... I didn't want to cry. Our lives would be so different. We would not be sitting here today. America would not be America if these boys didn't do what they did. And Grandpa and Grandma loves to say we'd all be speaking German. Right. So,
2: right, and they were boys. I say young men, but they really were boys. I mean, we think of our our kids at that age, it's just
3: it, Go to the World War II museum, and your your stomach will fall to the floor when you watch the map turn red of what Hitler took over. It yeah. was really scary.
2: <laughs> uh, Co, grandparent, his dad flew was the spirit uh, city of Savannah. That was his B seventeen, right? Really?
3: Yeah. yeah. Oh wow! That's a famous famous plane. Yeah. And he
2: was. Prisoner of War II. We'll we'll talk about
3: that. All right. I'm excited to meet you. uh,
2: I think, to your point, so I've never fought in the war, but I've done something recently where I've done a few roots trips to Tennessee, where my dad's family was, to Pennsylvania, where my mother's family was, and I have visited cemeteries. And I know it's in vogue now to just scatter your ashes to the wind. But I love going to cemeteries Mm -hmm. and saying the name of, you know, Jonas Stewart died in 1754. I think there's something to saying that person's name. Mm -hmm. It's what your your dad, your grandfather named the names. I think it is a meaningful thing to, even if you don't know who that person was, there's something to seeing that human being's name. And I went to this town in Tennessee where my dad's family lived from 1803 to 1915. And then they left. They went to Kentucky and then Michigan for work. And I thought, you know, they lived and died here. And they had over 100 years of existence that's gone. But I'm so glad I went there because I do think it's meaningful.
3: Well, and in the back of the book, there's an entire appendices for those that really want the nitty gritty. And it names the planes and it tells you you know, who was on it and when it was shot down and how many, um, like the missions, how many were killed in action. I remember right before the final manuscript was due because this book was not written on a computer, it was written on a typewriter. And it had to get digitized Like right before. I remember talking to the publisher. I'm like, so yeah, I mean, we're going to digitize this? And they're like, yeah, are we? I'm like, yeah. I'm not typing it out, like, uh, who are are you going to, and I remember right before it was due, I was on the phone with some of the World War II historians that worked on my grandfather's original book, and they came back to help me with this, which was really full circle, and I'm on the computer, I'm like, I think this is wrong, I think this is wrong, and the appendices, they're all lined up, and someone at the publisher, sorry if they're watching, it was like off by a line, I was like, we have to fix this. I was, like, sweating, and I don't even understand what I'm doing. I'm really bad at technology, and I'm really bad at math. The other thing is, may I hold the book really quick? Every, oh, I love yours has all this, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are pictures. Oh, no, this is the advanced reader's copy. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking. I didn't get the pictures. So the original, so the book has pictures in it. And fun story before we go is that um, I had to find every single photo. And grandpa had gone through national archives and museums, and he had sourced photos and family photos. And I went to my grandmother and I'm like, so I need to, she's like, good luck. I'm like, thanks. So I'm in the, thank you. I'm in the attic, I'm in the storage unit, I'm in the basement and I'm looking all over and I can't find the photos. And I'm like, oh geez, what am I gonna do? I need the photos, right? And so um, grandma's like, well, have you checked? the guest room, and I'm like, why? She's like, I think, and she's now in a wheelchair. She's like, well, I think there's a box and I go in the guest room, and there's a big white box that says luck of the draw photos. And that's where my grandfather had Not left sure it. Were. He had left it there. Like, nothing's ever been touched, right? So, like, things are just left for 20 years. And that's been sitting there, I guess, for, like, 20 years. I'm like, could someone have told me to check that first? <laughs> and they were all there. And then she wouldn't let me leave the house with them. I'm like, but now that I found them, I have to get on a plane with them. And, I have to... and everyone you know, thought I was going to lose them all, so I didn't.
2: If you have not gone to any of the cemeteries in Normandy, we've also, there's some in Belgium. The thing, the thing that's so extraordinary that they convey with the geometry of these headstones, they line up this way, they line up this way, they line up this way, and you have a sense of infinity. It just doesn't. End. It's, it's. I don't know who thought to do that, but it's extraordinary. Well, thank you all. This was very special. Thank you, Chloe. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for this special broadcast of the Ocean House Authors Series with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Please tune in each month as we'll bring you a new Ocean House Authors Series highlighting nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation. Hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author Deborah Goodrich-Royce. The WCRI is pleased to be partnering with the Ocean House to bring you this ongoing series highlighting the best and the brightest of the literary world. Thank you once again for joining us. And in the words of Margaret Atwood, in the end, we all become stories.